All right. Abba Father, thank you. Thank you for this time we get to gather together. Thank you that um, we get to come before your word and to heed your word and to listen to it, Lord. And I pray that you'd open up our hearts and our minds as we um, come before you. And I pray that we would see wondrous things out of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You probably noticed that there's a lot of things out there in the world that can hurt you, that can get you hurt. And, uh, of course, the internet never really fails to just provide the best illustrations or the best examples of the most creative ways, to put it lightly, to hurt you. So I kind of did a little research on the internet, and I just want to pick, I just picked a few of the most comical, I mean creative, um, examples of how people have hurt themselves. And here's one of them. This is just an anonymous user. It's not me at all. Um, I gave myself two black eyes when I was a kid by walking around my house looking through binoculars backwards. So I just couldn't tell, judge the different distance. Here's another one. I, this one is genius. I hurt my ankle while jumping on a trampoline. You know, that's fair. Everyone's done that. Which was covered in three inches of snow. Okay, that's a little bit more interesting. While wearing roller skates. <laughs> Try explaining that in the hospital. <laughs> this is a little bit too relatable. Uh, sneezed, threw my back out, couldn't work for a week, and could barely walk for the first couple of days. And I was 27, and that's, it, it wasn't, it's not me, it's not me, this isn't me, I swear. Um, my older sister once dared me, this is my personal favorite, my older sister once dared me to put a piece of mac and cheese pasta up my nose. <laughs> and I had to go to the hospital to get it extracted. <laughs> this one is a little bit personal. Uh, my brothers were attempting to stick pencils in the ceiling by launching them off the edge of the table. Instead, a pencil got stuck in my brother's forehead, and the pencil tip is still there to this day. <laughs> There's plenty of ways... To hurt yourself out there, but let me just give you one more. Don't go to church. True story. True, true story. In fact, the Surgeon General released a statement earlier this year that said the cause of the public health issue, crisis of isolation and depression, which, by the way, are the leading causes of suicide, mental health disorder, drug and alcohol abuse, and a plethora of diseases, is a growing lack of church attendance. Believe it or not, it is the result of an almost non-existent sense of genuine community among people. Church is now deemed non-essential, and that way of thinking is beginning to have its effect on the culture around us. The concept of growing in and up in a local church is rare. The result is that friendships are temporary and superficial. We don't build our lives around the interests of other people because we don't need other people, or at least that's what we think. We think we don't. Contemporary life is built around self-interest, self-satisfaction, and self-sufficiency. True friendships take time. Relationships that used to take toil, planting, and watering, guarding, and nurturing are now expedited to retreats, likes, and follows. Long-term discipleship and accountability is difficult, if not impossible, 
Yet, we don't need the Surgeon General to tell us what the Bible already tells us. Things that we know already through Scripture. God has clearly made us creatures of community. One of His many gracious gifts that is meant to bring us joy is the gift of friendship. The new covenant command of Christ stands then in stark contrast with this worldly ideology that we don't need people. John thirteen thirty four through 35 states, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I loved you, that you also love one another. To have true, biblical, Christ-exalting friendships is absolutely essential. So tonight, we're going to look at the joy of friendship. But before we jump into our text, I think it's necessary to give you some biblical perspectives of friendship first. I'm not going to backtrack on ground we've already been, but there's a certain kind of friendship, a certain kind of friendship that the Bible talks about that is intended by God to give you the most joy. And after we look at that, I'm going to give you a brief theological definition of joy. So before we talk about friendship, it's really important that we know what we're talking about, what those terms mean. So here are some of the biblical perspectives on friendship that I want to point out to you. And it begins in the Old Testament. The Old Testament's concept of friendship is very broad and has different degrees. It varies. Um, the most frequent word in Hebrew that translates as friend, though, is the Hebrew word for love. It's the Hebrew word for love. It, it's used to speak of a friend in a broad sense, a general, general sense, or a special friend like Jonathan and David. It's more often used in the Old Testament to describe the relationship between God and his covenant people. Let me show you. First, with Abraham. Abraham was considered God's friend. We read in Second Chronicles 20, verse 7, Did you not, O our God, dispossess the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the seed of Abraham, your friend, forever? James 2, 23 also calls Abraham the friend of God, quoting from the Old Testament. And then with Moses, Exodus thirty three eleven. Thus Yahweh spoke to, thus Yahweh used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. And in Judges five thirty one, thus let all your enemies perish, O Yahweh, but let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. The word love there is the same word that's often translated as friend. Those who are God's friend, God chose to love to be friendly to be a close, affectionate companion to his covenant people. And it is to those friends that he shows his chesed love to, his loyal covenant love, everlasting love. The psalmist then, he connects that friendship between God and man to those who share that same bond with God as God's friend. We read in Psalm 19, 13, I am a companion of all those who fear you and keep your precepts. So that's a little bit of the Old Testament's idea of a friend. And do we see the same thing between God and man in the New Testament? We do. We look at at Jesus in John 15, 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made him to you. Jesus is saying, that those in the new covenant aren't merely slaves. They're not just slaves in the sense that we don't understand what our master is doing. 
You are a slave, but he wants you to understand what he is doing. He wants us to be, to, to know him, to develop a vibrant knowledge and, and pursue him. We are slaves who are friends because we have the mind of Christ. This is what he means by, you are my friends. If we love Christ, we will obey Christ. And if we obey Christ, we are showing that we are friends of Christ. In the new covenant, we become friends of God. John, though, takes it a bit further. He moves from Christians' relationships and friendship with God and brings it to one another. In 3 John, we read, greet the friends. John gives the church a name. The name is the friends. The ones who love one another. John believes that all those who are saved by the blood of Christ are friends. You are friends based on your common relationship with God through Christ. And that's the kind of friendship that I want to focus on tonight. The friendships that will bring you the most joy are the friends you have in the church. Now I'm going to give you a brief theological definition of the word joy. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But joy in its basic sense means happiness. It's inward delight. Joy is the inward delight and satisfaction of the soul in pursuing and glorifying Christ. Biblical joy comes from obeying pursuing, and thereby glorifying Christ. In contrast to worldly joy, which is only concerned about self-pleasure, self-gratification, and self-interest. Therefore, that's what the biblical perspective of friendship looks like. And if that's the theological definition of joy, you combine them together, and the joy of friendship must be when believers delight and are satisfied in the mutual pursuit of knowing and glorifying Christ, That's the joy of friendship. Now I know what all of you are just on the edge of your seat asking. How do I cultivate joy in my friendships? So please turn in your Bibles to our text this morning, to Philippians, or this evening, sorry, to Philippians chapter 4. I just woke up, so. And you guessed it. We're going to be looking at the joy of friendship through the epistle of joy itself. The epistle of joy, Philippians, it's called that because Paul uses the word joy like 14 times. It's the overall tone and theme of the letter. But from Philippians 1, verse 27, we're going to use that as a launching pad to just um, hang our thoughts on this, this evening. And I'm going to show you, through this verse, how to cultivate joy in your friendships. Only, verse 27, only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel. The first way to cultivate joy in your friendships. Joy comes when friendships grow within the local church. Paul is writing to the Philippians as a prisoner in Rome, waiting to see Emperor Nero. This is where we leave him at the end of the book of Acts. The Philippians had been keeping up with the trials that Paul had been experiencing in Jerusalem up to this point, and it's highly likely that the trial 
went on, as it went on, that many other churches in the Asia Minor um, kept up with it as well. But the Philippians stood in contrast to them because the Philippians' concern for the well-being of Paul surpassed all the other churches. They even sent one of their pastors, Epaphroditus, to Rome ahead of Paul before he got there to deliver gifts to him and to minister to him in any way that they couldn't. So Paul writes to the Philippian church in gratitude and rejoicing for their faithfulness in supporting him. Yet, despite the overall joyful tone of the letter, that didn't mean that the Philippian church was just free from problems altogether. Paul writes not merely to thank the Philippian church for their generosity and commend them for their partnership in the gospel, but he writes to exhort them to unity and humility. Just a brief read through the book, and you'll begin to see that the church struggled with getting along with one another. So, that's why Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 27, only live your lives worthy of the gospel. What does that mean to live worthy of the gospel? The Greek word here that's translated live your lives is one word. The root word, some of you will find this interesting, it's where we get the word for politics. It literally means conduct yourselves as citizens. Notice it's a verb, it's an imperative, a command. This word would be something the Philippians were very familiar with. They were very pro- they were a very prominent Roman colony. They were called Little Rome. Their location was considered in the ancient world as a gateway to Europe. They were they they took pride in being Roman. They were patriots. So when Paul told them to live like a citizen, they would have immediately associated it with living up to the standard of being a Roman citizen. Yet Paul does something interesting here. He turns that phrase on its head. Turn to chapter 3, verse 20. Paul defines that for them. Paul says, in verse 20, chapter 3, For our citizenship, same word, different verb form, is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul states, you aren't just a Roman citizen anymore. You are a heavenly citizen. This word is also plural. So when Paul says, conduct yourselves as citizens, he's saying, live your lives together. Live your life in community. He is commanding you to live your life in the church. Live your life in relationships with other Christians. As a kingdom citizen, It isn't a call to isolated Christian living. It's a command to order your life around your fellow citizens, your fellow Christians, in a way that honors the gospel. Turn to Acts 23.1. Acts 23.1, this is one of the trials that Paul went to before being shipped off to Rome. Paul comes before the Jewish Sanhedrin. This is one of the first trials he faced. So the Philippians by now, probably heard about this incident. And Paul gives a defense of himself. And what does he say that gets the high priest so angry that he orders Paul to be slapped? I, and this is my translation, I have lived my life as a citizen before God. It's the same word. 
Paul is saying, I have lived my life with my neighbors in a pleasing way before God. Paul not only exhorts the Philippians to live as citizens in heaven, but also in holy conduct. So the second way you can cultivate joy in your friendships is joy comes when friendships promote holy conduct. Promote holy conduct. Paul states, live your life in the church as heavenly citizens in a manner worthy. The way you treat your friends matter. The way you live your life in the church will either distract from the gospel or it will point to the gospel. The sense of the word here indicates that you are constantly, you are to constantly conduct yourselves in this way. Paul doesn't just exhort you to live in the church. He exhorts you to live holy lives with your fellow believers in the church. Your friendships should be marked to, for a continuous effort to holiness, to sanctification. Nothing destroys the witness of a person, even the witness of an entire church, more than the way that they treat one another, their holiness. How are we to do that? How are we to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel? Paul gives us the answer right here in Philippians. Take a look at Philippians 3.16. However, let us keep walking in step with the same standard which we have attained. Brothers, join in following my example and look for those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Paul tells us to imitate him. Follow in his example and the example of those like him. So, how did Paul live? Well, I'm glad you asked because we don't have to go very far to get that answer. Chapter 3, verse 7. Just a few verses upward. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from the God upon faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's primary focus in life was to become conformed to Christ. Hop a few pages over to Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know what I will choose. But I am hard-pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your reason for boasting may abound in Christ Jesus and me. Paul didn't conduct himself in a manner worthy of Rome. He didn't conduct himself in a manner worthy that would exalt his own ego. Paul did not live his life in a way that would look out for his own personal interest. He lived for Christ, for Christ's interest. As a slave, he belonged to Christ, and his sole purpose in life and in death was to give glory to Christ. 
So how did Paul give glory to Christ in this life? How did Paul look to Christ's interests? He served the church. He looked to his friends' interests rather than himself. He worked for their progress and for their joy. He was able to confidently say, I lived my life in a manner worthy of the gospel. I lived my life before my neighbors in a pleasing way before God. You get joy in your friendships when you both work to see Christ formed in one another. You delight in praying for each other through difficult times. You confess sin to one another. You hold each other accountable. You are bold enough to correct each other when someone is wrong and humble enough to receive that correction. You are not working on some facade of self-righteousness to win social cred as a good person or even a good Christian. Rather, you are striving with everything in you to be conformed to Christ, and you're doing it together. We cultivate joy in friendships when we live as citizens of heaven in holy conduct, and thirdly, when we focus on the gospel. Joy comes when we focus on the gospel. Harmony is important. So to use a musical illustration, harmony is when different notes work together to make one chord. If everyone in the band were to try and play their own song and not harmonize together, what would you get? Joel would throw something at you. I mean, you, you'd get jazz music. You'd get a mess. That's what you would get. And the body of Christ works in harmony as well. When there's not one song that they're trying to play, when there's not one focus... If everyone was off trying to promote their own interests and live life for themselves, Joel will throw something at you. I mean, you'd get a mess. You'd get a mess. Paul commands the Philippians here to live together as citizens of heaven in a holy way that is focused on the gospel. The church's focus is not on growing numerically or fostering community to serve as one's personal echo chamber. That's not the point of a church. The church's focus is on making disciples and preaching the gospel. And the richest friendships that radiate with the deepest joy are those friendships that are focused on the gospel. The main concern of the friendship is not mutual gratification or even companionship. Those things are good. But when you elevate that to the place of the purpose of your friendship, what do you get? You end up with sinful favoritism, jealousy, eventually gossiping and strife. The support and furtherance of the gospel ought to spearhead the relationship. The interest of each individual fades into oblivion as the interest of Christ becomes louder and clearer. Now here's a fourth way to cultivate joy in your friendships. The fourth way. Joy comes when friendships stand united by doctrine. United by doctrine. Take a look at verse 27 again. So, whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Stop right there. The verb I want to draw your attention to is the verb standing firm. It's another command. It's a military term and draws a picture of a soldier standing firm against the onslaught of an enemy, of a coming enemy. It means hold your ground. You can just hear the urgency in Paul's voice here. Paul wants to ensure that the Philippians will stand firm on the ground they have already taken. 
He doesn't want them to sink back into spiritual immaturity and sin that they came out of. To use a football reference, don't you lose yards. Hold tight to your positions. Don't make any plays that are going to get you to lose yardage. Paul wants the church to be steadfastly cemented in unity. And the first way and the primary way that's accomplished is through doctrinal purity. The church is united by the truths of God's words. What made the church at Philippi so effective for the gospel was their doctrinal unity, was their doctrinal purity. In fact, Paul correlates that. He correlates the Philippians' love for one another with their understanding of the truth. In chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in full knowledge and all discernment. It's all connected. It is difficult to enjoy a friendship when two parties are doctrinally divided. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. Deep joy yielding friendships occur when friends have an accurate biblical understanding. What's so fascinating about the Philippians, though, is that there's no external threat to their doctrinal unity. There's no false teacher going around. In Colossians, which Paul would have been writing at the same time, the external threat was already at the door. In Philippians, though, that threat had not yet arrived. They were doctrinally united. There were no false teachers plaguing the church, but still Paul urges them to stand firm, to stand firm in their faith, to grow in it, to grow in their understanding of it. It wasn't the external threat, though, that Paul was so concerned about with Philippi. It was an eternal, internal threat that plagued the church. We see it when he says, Do nothing through selfish ambition or vainglory, and do all things without grumbling or complaining, implying that there's a problem here. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. The Philippian church had doctrinal purity, and they continued to grow in their knowledge of the truth. The concern for Paul, though, was the way they treated one another, was the way they lived together. And that was the biggest threat to their church. Number five, joy comes when friendships have identical interests. Identical interests. Chapter two, verse one. Therefore... If there is any consolation in love, of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, fulfill my joy that you think the same way, by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Not merely looking out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Last week, we looked at five dangerous friends. And you want to know what all those friends had in common. Every single one of those friends sought their own interests. They looked after themselves. Every one of them manipulates and dominates the friendship. Not to look after you or to look after the other person in the relationship, but to look after themselves. Yet a true friend, a biblical friend, looks after the interests of others. They look after Christ's interests. 
They want to see Christ form so badly in their friend. They no longer get angry at them for petty reasons. Instead, they are motivated to help them mortify their sin in their friend's life. They no longer flatter. Instead, they praise God and rejoice in the Christ likeness of their friend. They no longer seek to have a friend in order to hide themselves from their own insecurities. Instead, they are completely secure in Christ and so consumed by being obedient to Him that instead of being a fake, manipulative friend, they desire deep companionship that will help them glorify Christ. Jonathan and David got along so well because they had one interest, and that was obeying and glorifying Yahweh. You will not have joy in your friendships unless your friendships is characterized by the same all-consuming interest of obeying and glorifying Christ. What was it that gave Paul so much joy with the Philippians? Was it because they just gave him some money? Was it because they sent their pastor to help him out? No, it was because they partnered with him in the gospel. Their interests were the same. They were aligned I can tell you friendship after friendships that have completely disintegrated because there no longer remained commonality, interest, identical interests. I can tell you even more that have been painfully dismembered because Christ was no longer the single identical interest. They turn their back on Christ and instead of being a source of joy, it becomes a source of pain and sorrow. Joy, number six, joy comes when friendships have identical intention. Identical intention. What is this one purpose that we should all be thinking about that gives Paul so much joy in this verse, in chapter two, when he says, verse two, fulfill my joy that you think the same way, maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose. Paul gives you the answer in a few verses down. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He, this is what Christ Jesus did, he humbled himself. This is a thinking we ought to have in our minds. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Every believer needs to think this way. To think with humility that everyone else is better than himself. To obey Christ. To be a good slave of Christ. That's your purpose. That's your goal. That's your one purpose you need to be thinking of. And your friends are meant to help you with that. Your intention then is to humbly serve others in obedience to Christ. And so what if instead of asking what can I gain out of this relationship? How can this person make me feel popular or maybe well thought of? Or even better about myself. Instead you thought, how can I help this person? How can I honor those Christ died for around me? How can I be poured out like a drink offering as a sacrificial offering for their faith? How can I be spent for you? How can I spend my time and money and resources that God has given me to get more friends for his glory? This is how Christ wants us to seek out friendships. To look for others' interests, even at the expense of our own. And you heard that right, even at the expense of our own. Turn to Luke 14, verse 7. Luke 14, verse 7. This is a parable Jesus gave at, the, at a wedding feast. And while you're turning there, I want to give you some background on Greco-Roman life real quick. The ethic of friendship, that's what the Greeks called friends. 
if you can believe that, was a give-and-take concept. It was an ethic that they would mechanically work into all of their relationships. Now, what they meant by give-and-take was literally give-and-take. They would invite someone over and expect that person in turn to invite them over. They, it, it, it could look like gifts. It could look like letters and, and invites. And that's how Greco-Romans made friends. But if one party ceased to give something back to another, the friendship was pretty much over. And Jesus turned that concept on his, its head. Take a look at verse 7. The first part of this parable is referring to the guests and their pride. And the second part is the part that I really want to point out. Um, but I'm just going to read it all for you for context. And he was telling a parable to the invited guest when he noticed how they were picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not recline at the place of honor, lest someone more highly regarded than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both come and say to you, Give your place to this man. And then in shame you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place. So that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he also went on to say, and this is what, I want to point out, he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return. And that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For it will be repaid to you at the resurrection of the righteous. How often do we make friends with those who can repay us rather than those who can't give us anything back at all? We have an expectation, don't we? It's in our hearts that we should get back from the investments in people that we pour into them. That all our relationships should be give and take. Now, don't get me wrong, those relationships have their place. They do. But how much joy are you losing out on in the resurrection because you only seek the friendships that give back to you rather than the friendships that can't repay at all? How many times have you walked into Anchored and saw a new student standing off by himself in the corner and he just doesn't fit in? He's brand new. He's never been here before. And you chose your friends. You already have intimate relationships with instead of pouring into someone who probably is only visiting and won't ever come back. How many times do you lose out on joy when you don't reach out to those who know can't benefit you in any way and can't repay you for your hospitality and friendliness? Do you only invite friends over who can reciprocate because they have a nice video game council that you want to use too, so you invite them over and get you know a little give and take there. You know? Stand united by focusing on one intention in your interactions with others. And that's obeying Christ, even when it means you won't immediately get anything from it. Number seven, 
Joy comes when friendships have identical investments. Paul says, fulfill my joy, chapter 2, fulfill my joy. That you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit. This is chapter 2, verse 2. Paul exhorts the Philippians to stay united by maintaining the same love. The grammar and the context here makes that statement just uncomfortably clear for a modern day way of doing friendships. By the same love, he means have the same love for all believers. As Christians, we are to show the same love throughout the body of Christ to every believer. Having favorites or cliques within the body of Christ is anti-Christian. You don't get to have favorites. Cliques, and yes, it's pronounced cliques, I'm sorry. If it sounds pretentious, it's a French word, and that's because it is. It's pretentious. It's a form of social favoritism. It's different from cliques. Cliques is when you get along with somebody, you know, you just like click like a puzzle piece together. Everybody um, gets along well. You have things in common. A clique, though, it sounds so pretentious, but when I realized how that's how you pronounce it, I was just like, oh, man, I hate this word. It's like my new milk, you know? I just can't... Milk, clique, it just sounds terrible. Anyways, um, it's social bullying. A clique... A clique, excuse me, is social bullying. It's, it's excluding everyone else outside of your little group. If there's three or more gathered together in my name, you know, everyone else is excluded. Christ is not there because you all are just trying to exclude everyone else out of your friendships. All that does is stir up insecurity. All it does is stir up loneliness, division, and strife. And look how strongly Paul feels about this. He emphasizes the word maintaining, maintaining the same love. He knows this is a struggle. It's something that the church must constantly pay attention to keep watch over, to guard against. Paul urges the church to stand united, stand firm against favoritism. favoritism. Turn over to the Proverbs of the New Testament, the book of James. Let's just read what he has to say about the subject of favoritism, shall we? James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Favoritism is a sin because it comes from a heart that is focused not on the interest of others, not on Christ's desires, but on personal self-interest and fulfillment. James continues, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in bright clothes, there also comes in a a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay attention to the one who is wearing the bright clothes and say, You, sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, You, stand here and sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This is not only referring to those who cater to wealthy people and give them preference in the church. It addresses all acts of favoritism as coming from a, get this, a divisive, divisive, judgmental, and evil thinking heart. James goes on, listen, my brothers, my beloved brothers, 
Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and they themselves drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the good name by which you have been called? If you, however, if you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you are showing partiality, you are committing sin, being convicted by the law as transgressors. Partiality seems like just a little sin. Favoritism is just a little sin. It may even be a sin that you can easily hide. But it leads to great sins. It's an infringement on the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Favoritism comes from a heart of jealousy and self-ambition. Turn over to James chapter 3.13. not done with what he has to say about this. Who among you is wise in understanding? Let him show by his good conduct his words in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not down coming down from above, but is earthly, natural, that means unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil practice. Now, I understand there, that there are some friends who you may be very close to. They're dear to you, and you are very comfortable around them, you get along with them, and If you are friends with someone, there's a little application, and you both sit and talk and laugh together every time you go to church, just invite someone new in on your fellowship. Here's a way you can pursue joy in friendships. Tell your friend, I don't want to be a fellowship crutch. That's someone who you just go to every time you're in church. You just stick to them like Lou, and you don't have the guts to go out and invite someone else in. I don't want to be someone who only talks to the same people and only fellowships with one or two individuals. Don't let one another stay at just doing what's easy. Be hospitable. Do what's hard. And go make friends. Let your friend know you think you should let someone else in on your click. The puzzle piece, not the clique. If you two are inseparable, go together. And meet someone new. Get into your souls that as believers you are to show the same love for everyone who's been bought by Christ. Remember Pastor David's definition of a friend in Deuteronomy. It's someone who is one sold with you. Paul is saying he wants the whole church to be of one soul. Therefore, maintain, work for having the same love. You invest in everyone equally. And that's how you build unity in the church. You are friendly to everyone. Number eight, joy comes when friendships contend for the gospel in unity. So let's look back at verse 27, chapter 1, verse 27. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel. If the imperative to stand firm was passive, 
was on the defense. The command here to contend for the faith, then, is active. It's on the offense. To go back to the football analogy, Sandy and Firm is when the defense was on the field, and now comes out the offense. Paul's admonition here isn't to just preachers and teachers within the church. It's to everyone in the church. Paul's exhorting the believers to have this one pursuit in their minds. Fight for the gospel and do it together as friends. If the most painful relationships are those characterized by one party leaving the faith, I can't think of anything sweeter than when friends both have this one passion and they bring someone into the faith. They are set on seeing the gospel go out. Christ be proclaimed. The greatest joy you can garnish in your friendships with one another is the joy that comes from having the same evangelistic zeal. You both not only want to see Christ formed in one another, but you want to see Christ formed in other people as well. You contend for the faith of the gospel. This word contend can also mean labor, labor, labor alongside one another. It's used one other time in Philippians, in chapter 4. So go ahead and just turn there with me. We read in verse 2, I urge Eodia and I urge Syntyche to think the same way in the Lord. Indeed, I ask you also, genuine companion, help these women who have contended together alongside me in the gospel. Paul addresses the elephant in the room at Philippi here. He directly calls out two women who are both laborers in the gospel with Paul. And they have fallen into division and disorder. If we want to be a church then that contends for the gospel, we must be a church that is united, that agrees. That's why doctrine is so important. But is it doctrine that Paul is telling them to commend? I mean, to, to, to uh, make right here. Is, this, is that what Paul is concerned about? No, when Paul exhorts them to think the same way in the Lord, he is asking them to agree in one spirit, to be one soul, to get along, to be friends. Agree to stop pursuing your own interests and start looking after each other's. You're united. You might be sitting here asking, okay, how do I do that? How do I contend for the gospel with my friends? So turn to John 13, 34, 35, and this is the most basic way. Read this earlier, a new commandment. I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Then again, listen to the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also send them into the world. For their sake, I sanctify myself, that they themselves may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask on these on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. We want What I want to draw attention to in these verses is the fact that unity and love that the believers have for one another is evidence to the unbeliever. Paul mentions in this in Philippians, so head back over to chapter 1, verse 27. I'm making you turn your Bible a lot, I'm sorry. Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit, 
with one mind contending together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. As believers grow in holiness, stand firm in doctrinal purity and relational unity, and contend together for the faith, it serves as a sign of destruction for unbelievers. One of your most valuable evangelistic tools is the friendships you foster at church. Paul exhorts the Philippians for their partnership with him in the gospel. And how do they do that? Paul hasn't been in Philippi for years. And right now, is locked up in Rome. So how are they partners with him? How are they contending with Paul in the gospel? The answer is the next point. Number nine. Don't worry, there's not 17 points. Joy comes when friendships contend for the gospel through giving. Through giving. The Philippians supported Paul. They gave to the ministry. They supplied his needs. Not only did they give to him financially, they sent their pastor to to fulfill what was lacking on their part. Through their generous giving, they allied themselves with Paul. They allied themselves with the gospel. They were in the fray with Paul now. And that's how you support the gospel. That's how you contend for the gospel. You give and support your ministers in any way you can. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know. I see how that is how you contend for the gospel. But what does that have to do with friends? What does that have to do with having joy in friendships? Turn to Luke chapter 16. This is a parable that Jesus gave. Now, he was saying also to, his, to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a steward, And this steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called for him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. And the steward said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the stewardship away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the stewardship, people will take me into their homes." And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, One hundred baths of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down and quickly write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred cores of wheat. He said to them, Take your bill and write eighty. And this master praised the unrighteous steward because he acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And here's Jesus, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves from the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will take you into eternal dwellings. The Lord is saying you can buy friends for heaven. And all those who came to faith through your financial support of the gospel will be your friends in heaven. They will be your joy. They'll be your crown. And The gospel then, ironically, just gives you a different perspective on the proverb, wealth adds many friends. Because the gospel of Christ, the rich man, has an opportunity to make many friends by contending for the gospel through giving. Number 10, joy comes when friendships contend for the gospel in prayer. You pray together. Turn over to Philippians 1.18. Paul says, What then? Only that in every way, 
whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul is referring to here to the progress of the gospel, that even though he was in chains at Rome, the gospel was still going out, it was still being proclaimed, and he's able to rejoice even in his suffering. He quotes, in verse 19, he quotes Job, who knew that God would use his suffering because it wasn't a judgment for his sin. It was in order to bring about salvation. For I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Despite the sufferings that Paul was going through, he was able to have joy for two reasons. One was because of the prayers of the saints at Philippi. Some of my sweetest relationships at Grace are those with whom I pray with every Sunday morning. I try to direct everyone's attention in a prayer meeting to primarily focus on the gospel ministry. And it's so sweet to hear the prayers of, the, of your friends just pleading for the salvation of the lost. God answers your prayers. Every time I see baptisms, like this Sunday, I get to go to these people and I get to say, Look, we prayed for those people. God is answering your prayers. Seeing the Lord answer prayer week by week in response to wrestling in prayer alongside brothers and sisters in Christ for the cause of the gospel just binds your soul together in a way that nothing else can. Martin Luther was not only concerned about getting the Bible into the language of the people during the Reformation. He didn't just want to reform the way the church preached. He wanted to reform the way the church prayed. His biggest complaint in the 95 Thesis was that the Pope cared more about the church's pockets than they cared about their prayers. So if you want to see people saved in this youth group, then gather together and intentionally pray, contend for the gospel through prayer. If you think, well, I can never preach, I can never go up to a stranger and just give them the gospel and evangelize, then get on your knees and get good at praying. The last point this evening, joy comes when friendships contend for the gospel with humility. With humility. When it comes to contending together for the gospel, self-service is impossible. It is a call to die to self, to live for one and only one purpose, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul points us to his example, to Christ's example, to be humble, to have the mind of a slave, because truly, that's what we all are, aren't we? We're just humble slaves of Christ. We have no rights for others to trample on, no preferences to be adhered to. If you're a Christian, you're a slave. And if you notice it at all, Paul has been exhorting us to, has been to have the mind of a slave. You don't have your own dreams our ambitions, our goals, your interests, our Christs. All you have are orders from your master who bought you with a price. I would even suggest to you, you don't have as much autonomy even over your own friendships. You're all redeemed slaves looking to please your master. What makes joyous friendships is when two slaves really enjoy serving one another above all else, serving their master above all else. And that's how you build joyous friendships. You humbly submit to your master 
by living your life in a way that pleases Him, united with other believers to pursue the interest of Christ. You live, stand, and contend alongside your fellow slaves, all for Christ, all for His glory. Your delight and your reward is all wrapped up in this one phrase that Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's how you have joy in your friendships by having your delight and your pursuit be focused completely on Christ. Let's pray. Abba Father, thank you for this time that we get to spend together in your word, digging. I pray, Lord, that you would give us joy, joy in our friendships. In Jesus' name we pray.